You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I do hope that you have set aside the next hour so I can take you with me on a tour of the arts. The past year has exacted a huge amount of resilience, determination, patience and forbearance from our arts leaders, all the while expecting them also to stay optimistic and creative for the rest of us. And through the horrors and the sadness, the loss and the grieving and the raging social injustices, many of them have had the fortitude to take a step back from all their aborted plans, reconsider what 2021 might look like and see if they can attach to it a small bow of gratitude for lessons learned and new perspectives gained. And that is what each of my guests today has managed to do. We'll be visiting the stages of opera, symphonic music and theatrical magical realism. It's a packed show, so without further ado from me, let's head out. First stop, opera. Last week, Opera Theatre of St. Louis announced their 2021 season and like every theatrical season that makes it to a stage this year, it is something of a reinvention taking into account the health protocols of the summer by staging each of its six all-new productions on the company's new outdoor stage, plus the launch of a new free ticket initiative and the inclusion for the first time of a musical celebration of Juneteenth. And I am so delighted to have Andrew Jurgensen, the company's General Director on this morning's show. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. It's great to be with you. Did I pronounce your last name correctly? Jorgensen. Jorgensen. Okay. Danish at one point, uh, but I'm certain that that's not the way they would have pronounced it. Uh, <laughs> simply uh, American uh, a mispronunciation at this point. I used to live in Scandinavia, so my instinct is to call you Jurgensen. So yes, there you go. Yes, when, when I worked at the <laughs> Metropolitan Opera, many of our foreign artists, oh, Mr. Jurgensen, and I would say, nope, 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 not for not for a century now. <laughs> Well, let us start with a little love for the symmetry of your coming to Opera Theatre St. Louis back in 2018 from being the interim executive director at Washington National Opera, whilst your predecessor in St. Louis, Timothy O'Leary, moved to Washington National Opera to become its new executive director. Did you cook that up between you or did the universe just offer up that beautiful balance? The universe works sometimes in very elegant ways. <laughs> you know, in this case, I had been at the Washington National Opera going on six years when our previous executive director uh, decided it was time for him to move on to a new challenge. And I had grown in my role from being the head of casting until the entire artistic and production departments were under my purview. And so while the board went out to do an international search for the new leader for the opera, that made me a natural 
choice to be the interim executive for the Washington National Opera. From that international search, they found Mr. O'Leary, who I admired tremendously and who I was really excited to work for. Um, But of course, the year of serving as the interim made me a very strong candidate that when Tim was announced to come to Washington, I became a strong candidate to come to St. Louis. And the prospect of leading this opera company was too exciting a dream to pass up. Uh, There's so much about opera theater, which is so special, uh, that it was a dream that I simply couldn't resist exploring. Well, tell me a little bit about your background in and your love for opera. I know you did your undergraduate degree at Harvard, though I don't know in what subject. And you also have an MBA from New York University. But where and when did opera enter the picture for you? I grew up playing music. Uh, I played the piano. I sang in the choir. I conducted the marching band. uh, I sang in the school musical. You name it, I did it. Uh, But none of it particularly well. I never had aspirations (laughs) um, to be a musician. Uh, I knew that wasn't realistic for me. But I began going to the opera when I was a kid. In the fifth or sixth grade, we were studying ancient Egypt. And so for Christmas, my parents got tickets and we went to go to see Aida at the Metropolitan Opera. Uh, I remember it vividly uh, all these years later, and I was hooked. And it became something that my dad and I did together. We fell into the opera rabbit hole. We explored (laughs) opera and we, we would go to the New York City Opera, to the Metropolitan Opera, to Opera Philadelphia, closer to our home in South Jersey. And we just fell in love. Um, and so fast forward, I was studying history at Harvard. I thought I would go to law school, but I was also very active in the Harvard Glee Club, which is the college choir. And there's a fabulous tradition in the Harvard Glee Club of alumni who had gone on to significant careers in arts administration. And so I was at an event with some of our alums one day and talking to an alum who happened to be uh, the CEO of the New York Philharmonic. And he said, well, what are you going to do when you finish college? And I said, I'm preparing to take the LSAT to go to law school. He said, he said, that's a terrible idea for you. You should pursue arts administration. And until that moment, I had never really understood that it was a career path. Uh, I never understood how everyone at the Met knew to come together at 8 o'clock to do AIDA. Uh, But from the moment that I knew that this was a career path, uh, leading an opera company is the only thing that I have wanted to do. And so truly, I am in my dream job today. Well, you have been described as an artistic striver, one of the brightest, most energetic, promising leaders rising in the opera field today, someone who has youthful enthusiasm, a pioneer spirit, emotional intelligence and artistically brilliant mind, and that you are very approachable. And by the age of 30, you were already high in the echelons of the theatre world in Washington, D.C. and New York. So what is your secret, Andrew? Uh, That's a really flattering series of... uh, (laughs) Um, thank you for this. You could do my PR. That's fabulous. Um, you know, I I don't know that I I don't know that I have a secret to, or that I live up to all of that extraordinary praise. Um, I think the secret is that that I am tremendously passionate about this work, and uh, there's nothing that excites me more than sharing my enthusiasm for this magnificent art form with other people. 
And, you know, I like to say that opera is the ultimate team sport. It takes literally hundreds of people every night to make this art form come to life on stage, backstage, in the pit, in our offices, the supporters and volunteers and board members, and of course the audience members who who are the key ingredient in helping us bring it to life. My job is the ultimate privilege in that I get to engage across all of those different areas and share my enthusiasm with all of them to help all of them bring this to life. Um, It's a gift to wake up each morning and to do this work. Do you feel like a conductor or a magician? Conductor, magician, <laughs> logistician. Sometimes there's a little bit of therapist involved uh, when it comes to working with artists. But I think mostly my job is to work with extraordinary people and to enable them to do their work uh, at the highest level. The amount of skills required to produce opera, from deep artistic knowledge to deep technical knowledge to carpentry to philanthropy, we cover a lot of ground, and I'm blessed to work with some really talented and extraordinary people. One of the things that you have long championed since way before the racial inequality in the arts conversations that were happening last year is the inclusion of new works by diverse voices in your programming. So when you envision the future of opera and classical music to some degree too, and appealing to new generations, what do you see? What are your hopes? This is the question that our field is is reckoning with right now as our society is reckoning with this extraordinary crisis of racial and social justice uh, that has come to the fore again this year. Uh, I don't know exactly what it looks like, but I know that the answers will bring new people and new voices to the table and that it's in bringing those voices together into leadership, into positions of artistic influence, that together we will come up with answers that I would not have come up with on my own. Uh, I feel that even in this year, as we work to bring new members into our team at Opera Theater, diversifying our creative leadership, that the answers we come up with together are different and better than the ones that we came up with before. And the art gets better because of that. Mm -hmm. So what does the future look like? I hope that the future is a place where people of all different backgrounds, all different socioeconomic statuses, all different lived experiences feel that that there is a space for them in opera, that opera can belong to everybody and that they can in some way see their own values and lived experiences reflected on the opera stage. It's going to take a lot of people working together to build that future, but it's a commitment that I and Opera Theatre are very deeply working towards. Well, let's talk about the festival season you have planned, all of which takes place between May the 22nd and June the 20th, I believe. You have six all-new productions. Tell us about your choices. We are so excited to be returning to live performance this year after, of course, the cancellation of the 2020 festival season. Uh, Like so many other arts organizations, the COVID-19 pandemic forced us to cancel our in-person activities last year, has forced us to adapt, and indeed we are adapting still. Uh, 
through the foresight of our board and the support of our board and supporters, we figured last summer not to plan for a return to normal this summer, not to count on being back in the theater. And so we are taking the opera outside. We're turning one of the parking lots adjacent to our opera house into a beautiful outdoor theater where, with the collaboration of infectious disease specialists from Washington University, we have developed really extensive protocols that will enable us to bring artists, artisans, company members, and audiences together safely for a season. And it's a season that I think represents the very best of an opera theater season in any year, though adapted for these protocols. With the advice of the medical experts, we're only doing one-act productions. We're limiting the length, limiting the size, uh, doing lots of things so that we are simplifying and reducing the overall scale of the festival so that we can safely quarantine artists, bubble the different productions together, test and separate individuals through social distancing, finding ways that we can put artists together but safely. And so it's in that context that we will have uh, four main stage opera productions. We open with Puccini's great comedy classic, John Miskiki, uh, which is one of the great comedies of opera. And certainly after the year that we've had, uh, we could all use a laugh. <laughs> right. uh, an opera we haven't done at Opera Theater since 1979. So also one that's due to return to our stage. Next up will be William Grant Stills' one-act opera, Highway One, USA. Uh, William Grant Still is a really important American composer. He was called the Dean of African American Composers, and he wrote a number of operas, but they have been sort of really tragically overlooked. And so as Opera Theater of St. Louis has done with many composers and many works, uh, we are excited to produce one of his works and hopefully to help restore his work and this opera to the center of the canon. I hope that this production will inspire other companies to look again and to revisit the works of William Grant Still. Uh, third, we have the one-woman tour de force, Poulenc's La Voix Humaine, The Human Voice. Patricia Reset, the great soprano who has had an extraordinary career at all the leading opera houses of the world and who is now also the artistic director of our Young Artist programs, will sing this extraordinary one-woman piece. Um, and of course, there's nothing better for social distancing than a one-person <laughs> opera uh, that works out rather well in the COVID protocol lane. Uh, and finally, we'll close the season on the main stage with the premiere of three new world premieres that Opera Theater has commissioned during this pandemic. Uh, Opera Theater has a great history of commissioning world premieres, uh, and we didn't want to stop that during the pandemic. And so we commissioned three exciting teams of composers and librettists to write 20 to 25 minute long operas inspired by and adapted to the conditions of COVID-19. So operas with small orchestral forces, instruments that don't spit or aerosolize the air, casts that can be socially distanced, and, and topics that speak to the world that we are living in. 
Laura Cartman, who's probably most famous for scoring HBO's Lovecraft Country, has written a short opera about parenting during the pandemic. Damien Sneed has written a beautiful short opera about the debate on race between James Baldwin and William F. Buckley. Uh, These are three short works that speak to this moment, and we're extraordinarily excited to be commissioning world premieres during this moment. As you mentioned, there are other things that we are also doing. Our annual Center Stage concert, which features our young artists taking the stage for features and a celebrated evening of music that will feature them in great opera classics. And also our inaugural first ever concert, uh, I Dream a World, celebrating Juneteenth and Black Music Month which is curated by Nicole Cabell and Will Liverman, two of the leading singers in Highway 1 USA, uh, extraordinary Black artists who are curating this concert for us and in collaboration with the Missouri History Museum are creating something that we hope will speak to the St. Louis community in a way that uh, opera theater does not always get to do. It's a really exciting season. We can't wait to share it with audiences. Well, I was thrilled to see that you have your first ever Juneteenth celebration this year as the grandmother of the Juneteenth movement, Miss Opal Lee of Fort Worth, Texas, was on the show a few weeks ago as her grandson lives here in Columbia. And I sent him your notice that you were doing the Juneteenth and he shared it on Facebook too. That's very exciting. How did 2021 become the year that Juneteenth finally made it into the season? You know, I think this has been a year Uh, for so many of us, of learning, of looking again at um, understanding just how much more there is for all of us to do to really create this field as an inclusive space for everyone. Uh, Our company was deeply moved, deeply inspired by the social justice movement that came to the fore after the tragic murder of George Floyd. And we've been having a lot of conversations about what we can do, what more we can do. Opera theater has a wonderful history of commissioning diverse composers, of telling diverse stories. But I think some of those notable successes have sometimes enabled us not to look deeply at the rest of our work across all of our spaces And I think that in this year, we are looking more deeply at what a holistic commitment to equity, diversity, and inclusion means. And it was through conversations in that lens that our staff brainstormed this idea uh, of adding a celebration of Juneteenth and Black Music Month. And then, of course, it was talking with artists and with our partners at the Missouri History Museum that has allowed that idea to blossom into what I hope will be a really meaningful celebration. Well, I am very excited that you are doing that. So this season, you are also launching a free seat initiative, which you are calling Phyllis Seats, named after one of the company's life board members, Phyllis Brissenden, who died in December 2019, leaving Opera Theatre St. Louis, one of the largest ever bequests for an opera company of 45 million United States dollars. Tell us about Phyllis. Phyllis was an extraordinary woman who we miss deeply. Phyllis was dedicated to opera theater from its founding. She actually made one of the first ever gifts to our company uh, in our founding season in 1976. Um, Phyllis was passionate about 
the arts, about nature, about, about birding. She was a wonderful friend, and she was deeply committed to the idea that opera and the arts could and should be for everyone. She always brought new friends to the opera. She was always excited to share performances with people who had not yet been to the performances. She was very private about her philanthropy, and during most of her life, most of her giving was actually anonymous. And so we struggled to think of an appropriate way to honor such an extraordinary bequest. And indeed, uh, that bequest has truly been the bedrock that has allowed our company to do so much and to really feel some security during a year when so many arts organizations are facing existential challenges. And it was the idea of, of access that I think she would appreciate and that would mean so much to her and which I hope that we are signaling and achieving through the Phyllis's Seats program. In honor of Phyllis's commitment to bringing new friends to the opera and her belief that opera could be for everyone, we will be offering at all opera theater festival season performances this year and in years to come a number of tickets that are completely free and available to members of our community by reservation just a couple of days before performances. And so if you weren't part of the in crowd and you didn't know to buy your tickets in advance, or if you thought maybe opera wasn't for you or that you couldn't afford to come to the opera, I hope that we are signaling to our community and making opera really accessible to everyone, not just to the people who come through this program, but also in signaling to others that there really is a space for them here at Opera Theater. Uh, it's a commitment we are excited to launch and something that I think Phyllis Brissenden would be very proud of. Now, those seats are available on a first-come, first-served basis, but it's not really needs-based, so anybody could call up and get a Phyllis seat. That's right. Uh, it's, there is no test for what need looks like, but we trust that people will decide if this program is for them. And so whether it's students or seniors or families taking uh, an attempt on, a, on a coming to the opera for the first time, uh, there are lots of reasons why someone might want to take that first time at the opera risk uh, for free. And for all of those reasons, we will look forward to welcoming people to the opera and to sharing the experience with them as they come to join us at Opera Theatre. Now, tickets for your outdoor festival season go on sale on May the 3rd and cost $39, which is pretty reasonable for opera. So if a family of four couldn't quite afford for all of them, could two people buy tickets and two people get Phyllis seats? Does it work that way too? I imagine that it could. Uh, the Phyllis's seats will not be available until a couple of days before each performance. And that's actually intentional to ensure that... Uh, it's not just those who knew to buy in advance that have access, but certainly we are open and excited about making this program available and that people should decide if it's for them. We certainly expect that in this year of limited capacity and after uh, a long time of being stuck and isolated from one another, that a return to live performance we expect will sell out pretty quickly. And so uh, my hope is that this is also a way for people who just didn't act uh, before we sell out to ensure that some of them are able to get tickets as well.
Perfect. Well, Opera Theatre of St. Louis's season kicks off on May the 22nd with Pacini's one-act comic opera, Gianni Schicchi, and continues through June the 20th. You can find out more about their season, their cast, and the company at opera-stl.org. Andrew Jorgensen, General Director, it has been a total pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much. The pleasure is mine. Thank you. God is senile and dying, and taking the rest of the universe with him. So the angels are joining together in revolution to save all of everything, which means they are no longer available to protect humans. Meanwhile, the war in heaven has reduced New York to a smouldering urban wasteland where the food has been turned to salt, water no longer seeks its level, and its denizens are alone in the chaos. This is the world in which we meet Marisol, who, without her guardian angel, must now navigate a world of angels with oozes, multiple people who want to do her harm, and a future that hangs precariously between certain doom and the start of a glorious new history. And if that sounds like your cup of theatrical tea, my next guest, MU Theatre Director Siomara Conejo, can elaborate as she is directing the play Marisol by Jose Rivera, and it opens online next week. Good morning, Siomara. Good morning, Diana. Thank you for having me here. You are welcome. There is so much to unpack in this play. There is. From the story, to the magical realism, to the language, to the playwright, to its timelessness. Tell me, where does it start for you? I think you you covered all the, the elements that I think have really drawn me to this play. And the play has been such a an important part of my trajectory as a theater artist, as a theater student, and then coming here to Missouri to be part of the MU theater department and now collaborating with faculty and staff and designers and undergraduates and graduate students in creating this world. I think it really is all those different elements. The fact that it is very incredibly timely, which is also heartbreaking that Mm. so much has, has not changed. And I think coming from surviving through 2020, right? And we're still in the midst of the pandemic. So we're still navigating uh, that experience that these themes are still relevant, that we're still experiencing them today, um, but that we can still identify with the character and um, who is in a sense embodying the resilience that we have inside as human beings, right? Whether you believe in a higher power or believe in yourself or believe in the people around you. So I think it's everything. It's the world that Jose Rivera has created, which is, I love the way that you introduced it. I think I've been so involved in directing the show and rehearsals that it's nice to step back from it and listen to it. And, and, and it sounds exciting and it sounds poetic and it's lyrical and it's musical and it's, it's dark, it's gritty, but it's also hopeful and funny, uh, and poetry and art. So if you if that is your cup of tea, <laughs> that's a big <laughs> cup of tea um, with all the fixings and, and a treat, a buffet of, of visceral work. And um, the design is, is you have to see it <laughs> virtually, you know, to really get a sense of it. But I think in reading the play and understanding the world um, that comes through. So I would say everything, everything that you just said um, and the themes and the characters and the world and and the fact that we're doing this play in 2021 after 2020 has a very a, a different type of weight, I think, for everybody involved. Well, tell us about the main character, Marisol. Yes. So Marisol Perez is a Puerto Rican woman who is from the Bronx. 
in New York and she works in Manhattan. So she's navigating through her own kind of cultural identity and uh, trying to fit in in these both worlds, right? But not really fitting in <laughs> in Manhattan and then also in, in the world of publishing. She works in publishing and also in her neighborhood in the Bronx, right? And so she is, I think, trying to navigate her own identity and also trying to survive in the world. And she has this really fascinating arc where she encounters the angel who who pretty much lets her know that now it's time for her to fend for herself, you know. And I don't think that Marisol believed that she could survive until she was forced to go through these experiences and and tap into her own strength, right? And also the people around her. And I think the the journey that she goes through really does both challenge, but it also reaffirms her faith in humanity. And that is something, um, faith is a very important theme throughout the play and not necessarily just related to religious faith, uh, but also faith in ourselves and faith in the world that we live in. So when I think about Marisol, I feel that we have all experience and and pretty much lived in her shoes the past year (laughs) when we've had to tap into how do we get through this? You know, how do we make um, the best out of a really difficult situation? How do we look towards our neighbors and our communities for support, allow ourselves to break down, to be afraid, to, um, to question, to be angry at the things that are happening because there's so much injustice in the world, right? Especially with the pandemic and so many people suffering and the uh, inequalities of, of, folks who are suffering more than others and all these different things that we were kind of experiencing. Um, but then being able to to stick through it and to, to find that light through the darkness. So my hope is that folks will identify with Marisol and, and see a sense of themselves in this character who we want to root for. We want her to get through it. We want her to survive because we are living through her vicariously. <laughs> um, and I'm going to go back to, you know, 2020, right? That we've lived this experience ourselves. So she's a complicated character, um, which is to Jose Rivera's um a compliment to his work in developing this these complex characters is that she is also flawed, you know, and uh, there's moments when we don't understand her, when we might not necessarily agree with her, but we mm-hmm. understand where she's coming from and how her experiences as a brown woman living in a marginalized neighborhood, trying to fit into the Manhattan world is navigating through these experiences. So she's our shero and we, we want to root for her. And I think, I think you will, um, our, our student, Deja Marie Garrett, is incredibly talented, incredibly fascinating, wonderful, talented actor. And I think she's bringing so much sincerity and, and humor and play, but also grit and strength and fierceness to this character that, that I think the audiences will really appreciate. Well, the play was originally scheduled as part of the 2020 season and pretty much right as lockdown started, it all got mm-hmm. postponed. We didn't get to chat mm-hmm. with each other. So I'm curious how... Now that you've had an extra year to sit with it, have your directorial choices changed over the past year of sitting with this play? Oh, yes, completely. Um, <laughs> and yes, it, it, it feels it, this play has been years in the making. And it's true. We had our first rehearsal the day I believe that all the universities, including MU, decided to move from in-person to online teaching. So we have our first reading and then I have to let the actors know that we were canceling the show and obviously prioritizing everyone's health and well-being. Plus, we're also going through a pandemic, a global pandemic. So we want to make sure people are okay. And meeting with designers, and we had already worked on design concepts for this show for maybe the year prior to 2020. So this is something that was 
very dear to, I think, the entire production company, which includes faculty, staff, undergraduate and graduate designers. And um, collectively as a group, we we came to terms that we would have to let it kind of sit, you know, and um, Professor Mark Vital, who's doing the costume design, really beautiful costume designs for the show, he made a comment about kind of letting it sit and allowing ourselves to live through 2020 and seeing how the experience of living through this pandemic, how that impacts our creativity. And I kept thinking about this comment that he made, and I completely agreed. And it, in, in, in a sense, has been a blessing in disguise because it has pushed us out of our comfort zones, out of the design concepts and directing concepts that we were comfortable with, that we had already um, grown attached to because we were so excited and then forced us to kind of dig deeper, right. To, to reflect more on the world and, and more than the pandemic, uh, the social justice movements, you know, a, a lot of things that were happening in 2020 really had an impact on the way we read the play and how we wanted to communicate that with the audiences. So we did have to make adjustments, get more creative, which is something that I think theater practitioners and artists are very good at, right? Be improvising, uh, resolving problems, working with limited resources, but coming up with some really lovely designs that still honor this beautiful world that Jose Rivera created. And when you read the play or if you see the play, you'll get a sense of that. You know, how do we capture the spirit of this world in its grit, but also its beauty at the same time and tell the story? And one of the things that I've had to do as a director is in prioritizing everyone's well-being because we're still following CDC guidelines, following a theater department guidelines, as well as the university and making sure our students and folks who are involved in the rehearsal process are safe. Um, I had to tweak my blocking. And so I thought about, you know, I have to adjust this blocking because we can't have students touching each other or too close to each other and integrating socially distanced blocking into the world of the play. The good thing about this play and Jose Rivera's world that he created is that it lends itself to that. So when I thought about, I have to create a world where these characters, even though they want to touch each other, right? So the embrace, the hello, um, how to show each other love and affection that they couldn't. So how do we create a language that the audience can read and the, and the actors can understand that is the new language of affection, the new language of touch, the new language of love. And I realized that's something that we've done in 2020 and in 2021, right? We, we know that when we encounter folks, we can't just hug them. <laughs> we can't just touch. We can't just, so we've created a language. And so I tried to replicate that on stage and it has forced me to think differently as a, as a director and blocking movement, creating these images on stage that still read well, that audience members will understand that don't just look weird, you know, why are they not touching, but, but make sense in the world. And thankfully this world lends itself to doing that. So we've done some really creative, innovative things. And I say that most of the design uh, team would say the same thing that they've had to reinvent design, um, processes and also concepts to fit the world and beautiful, beautiful work has been done because we were forced to think innovatively and to think outside of the box. But there's also no in-seat tickets for this this show, right? It's all online. Yes. So you've had to think about producing a play that's being filmed, not seen yes. from the seats. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yet another challenge. <laughs> um, but I think the, the labor, the, the fruit will be very sweet. And you'll see at the end all the work that has been placed into making that 
uh, success and how do we honor the conventions of theater, right? Even though folks will be seeing this through the screen, my goal, and I think the design team and the production team, we've all been on the same page here, is that audience members feel that they're in the theater with us, that we're still honoring theater, especially because we miss live theater <laughs> so much more, I think, than ever before. And, and having that shared collective experience as audience members go through this journey with the actors in a dark room with the lights down. Um, and so that's been one of the goals is how do we communicate that through the screen? But also there's conventions of film uh, technology as well as film design and cinematography that we wanted to tap into to to utilize to our benefit so that folks can see this visual work of art uh, through the screen. And so having to kind of play that balance. And I hope that when folks watch it, they'll feel like they're there in the theater with us and that um, this, in a sense, becomes an homage to theater and to live performance work and, and sharing that with the community. The live stream is a different show because um, it, it'll be filmed differently, and then and then the live and then the filmed recording is a much more cinematic take, but it's still theater. Because people have asked me which one should I see, you know, the live performance or, and I think it really depends on what is more exciting for you. And obviously, live theater. The exciting thing about live theater is that it's live, and anything can happen. <laughs> and and you will know when you're watching through the screen that this is happening right now, and there's something really special about that. And watching the filmed version uh, does have some more cinematic qualities, which allows you to see certain spaces and certain angles where you wouldn't if you were sitting in the theater, but still very theatrical. So I think it depends on what your taste levels are. And I'm hoping that if folks see it one time, if they see the live stream, that they'll want to see the recorded version, <laughs> you know? So we've had to balance both of those. Well, it is a fascinating layered play. And I feel like we could talk about it for about two hours and, and we could. barely, <laughs> barely cover everything. It's going to mm. raise so many questions for people as they watch it. Well, Marisol, written by Jose Rivera and directed by Xiomara Conejo, will be live streamed on Thursday, April the 15th. And then the recorded performance can be viewed from Friday the 16th to the 23rd of April. And you can find out more by going to theatre.missouri.edu. Siomara, thank you so much for all the work you're doing on this. Thank you so much, Diana. <laughs> I, I do hope you get to see it and maybe we can chat about it after. That would be marvellous. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. 2020 was the 50th anniversary of the Missouri Symphony Orchestra, but like almost every event and anniversary last year, it got postponed until a time when it could be celebrated together with the orchestra's friends, donors and musicians. And tomorrow night, Saturday, April 10th, they get to do just that with the premiere of their anniversary documentary called Another World, which will be at the Missouri Theatre and will be the first official event in the theatre since March of last year. And I am delighted to have the orchestra's executive director, Trent Rash, back on the show to tell us more about it. Good morning, Trent. Good morning, Diana. So everything you had planned for your anniversary year last year got put on hold. And this premiere event is the first time you've been able to get together with everyone in over a year. Is it going to be a night when everyone's emotional cup just runneth over? Absolutely. I, I believe so. I've had so many people ask, well, should I dress up? And I said, well, I certainly am because this is a momentous occasion. <laughs> 
sequins and boas all over the place. Right. Well, the Missouri Symphony began life as the Missouri Symphony Society back in 1970 when it was founded by Maestro Hugo and his wife Lucy Vianello to provide symphonic music and music education to the people of Mid-Missouri. And sadly, Maestro Hugo Vianello passed away a couple of years ago, but the story of the Missouri Symphony is really a story about Hugo and Lucy's love of music. Trent, tell us about the documentary. Yeah, it, it is actually about a year and a half in the making. This project was started by myself and my former co-worker, Monica Senegal Palmer, in the fall of 2019, when we got to thinking about what would we like to do for this momentous occasion, for this golden anniversary. And I thought, what a gift we could give to not only the community, but the, the membership of Mosey by trying to preserve the legacy of these people. You know, Lucy Vianello is still alive, which is a wonderful thing. And I thought, how can I and capture all of these wonderful memories and, and stories that she has and that other donors have that have been here from the beginning or from near the beginning. And so that's really where the, the, the project started. And we were so fortunate to, to partner with Peace Frame Productions, uh, which are just, they really understand how to make a documentary. And I'll tell you, when I saw the, the cut of it, last week, I, I really openly wept about five times. Oh. Yeah, it, you know, it really does what it, it's meant to do, which is sort of tell a new generation of, of people in Colombia who may not even know Hugo or Lucy, where this current organization that's been around for 50 years and hopes to be around for 50 more. It's really a history lesson for those people who maybe don't know and then a gift to those who do. So is it interviews with people? Is it archival footage? How is the film put together? So it's a mixture of both. And part of that is because, obviously, as you mentioned, um, Hugo Vianello passed away in 2018. So he is a character in the documentary, but he's in there through archival footage. So you do see him a lot and you do hear from him a lot, but it's through all of these interviews from the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s. And then that is partnered with these present day interviews from his wife, Lucy, and from our current music director, Kirk Trevor, and from... Um, current donors who have been around for many years. And so it's it's really told, the story came about through the telling of these stories from all these different people. Were there any surprises in there for you? You know, I did learn a few things that I was not aware of. One of them is that when the theater was bought by the symphony back in the 80s, I think 87, they wanted to get a new curtain. And the new curtain might not have come about until the renovation, but when they did that, they took the old curtain and they sewed it into pillows. And so there are this collector set of about 30 to 50 pillows floating around Columbia and who knows where now that are all actually made from the old curtain of the theater. Do you have any idea who has them? Yeah, actually, you see one in the documentary. I know Georgia Morehouse, who's a longtime donor and member of, of, of Mosey. She had she shows one actually in her interview. So she has one. And um, I was actually speaking about the documentary at an Osher class two weeks ago. And another woman held up a pillow, too. So they're floating around the Columbia <laughs> community. <laughs> so you found two out of how many? 50, did you say? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> what stories did Lucy have to tell of those early days that maybe were were revealing in some way. Yeah, you know, it was a really beautiful um, look at somebody who was never really in the limelight like her husband was, yet she was pulling a lot of strings and doing a lot of work behind the scenes. And it was really how she said, I understood my role and I accepted it and I was happy to do it. And 
there was actually a time where Lucy was working full time for the symphony. I'm not even sure she was getting paid, but she essentially served in the early days as the office staff. So there's a lot of, of her talking about how she watched what other symphonies were doing. And she was like, well, that worked for them. Let's try it here. And so it was a lot of trial and error of, of how to make things work in this community. But, you know, one thing about Hugo and Lucy that's just so beautiful is, is how much they created a wonderful community around themselves because it was hard work to take on the Missouri Theater and um, all of the things that came with that. It really needed a lot of repair and just the the core of volunteers that they put together in order to keep the building going is is truly amazing. And thinking about the archival footage that you have of Hugo and everybody else, like what material did Peace Frame Productions have to pull from to create this documentary? Yeah, that's that's always, um, you know, it's really funny how they describe it because it's kind of like a big jigsaw puzzle and you're always looking for certain pieces as you get closer <laughs> to the end. They were very fortunate. And um, this is a testament to the organization, but a lot of wonderful materials had been donated to the State Historical Society of Missouri. And so there are a number of boxes and there's a whole area dedicated to Mosey there. And so they found a number of newspaper clippings and actual videos and audio recordings there. And um, that's where they found the specific video recordings that they used for Hugo during this documentary. This idea came up in the fall of 2019. So you were really filming it during the pandemic. How did you navigate the limitations of filming during a pandemic? Yeah, so that's very interesting. And you know, um, this is one of the reasons that the documentary actually is not completely finished, because it is actually a sort of a three act project. And we are sort of halfway through act two. And the reason it's not finished is because a lot of the things that we were going to film in 2020 didn't happen. So what they were able to do with the limitations that they had were to piece together the story of Hugo and Lucy. So their story is very fleshed out that act one of the founding of the symphony and, and their relationship with the Missouri theater and, and the beginnings. Um, that's all very well done. And then we get into the Kirk Treva era, which is act two, but that is incomplete because that's where we started to, to pull in some present day recordings. So our hope is that after people see this, and it's about 40 minutes long, that we'll get some buzz and maybe some interest in helping to fund the rest of the project. They certainly have a lot of footage and, and a lot of the story that they still want to tell they do have, but there are some pieces missing to put that in that they hope to get this year. So in fact, they already... They're going to be um, filming a number of events centered around Maestro Kirk is stepping down this year. So they will be actually capturing a number of those events this year, as well as any special things we have for our anniversary. Well, like any 50-year-old organization, Missouri Symphony has had its ups and downs. And there were definitely some downs in the late 2000s when you moved into the Missouri Theater Building and budgets went way over income. And ultimately, the building had to be sold. But how much is this film an unflinching look at the life of the symphony over 50 years versus a booster film for the symphony? Yeah, that's a great question. So right now, I would call it more of a heartwarming booster film. Um, and I think it's because they're still missing some of those pieces for that particular part of the story. They have actually a lot of it. But in order to get to the third act, we didn't want to put that conflict in just yet. You know, it's it's funny how a documentary can sort of be shaped like an, another movie where you have what is the conflict in this story that's evolving and then what is the resolution? And the resolution is what we haven't been able to film yet, which is where we're heading to next. But there definitely is a lot of footage they captured, even though it's not there yet, about 
the 2010, 2011, when the, when the theatre was sold to Mizzou. Well, over the last 50 years, there has been a gradual falling off of traditional audiences for classical music as people have aged and died. And classical music in general has, to a large degree, failed to entice younger audiences and a new generation of donors. So when you look back over the past 50 years and think about, you know, where you stand now on the cusp of the past and the future, I'm curious whether you see any lessons or signs that were overlooked in the past and what you as the current leader of the Missouri Symphony can learn from the past as you look to the future? I think one of them was, you know, when we made the decision in 2018 to rebrand and we got rid of that word society, I think that was a step in the right direction. I think that word, even though it was well-intentioned by the organization, is a very exclusive word. And so by us removing that, it's it's really symbolic of us saying we want to be open to, to everyone. And so part of that is we have to find ways to perform for people that maybe can't meet us where we are. And so one of the, the you know, I will say the blessings of COVID has been we have reinvented ourselves online. And so that has allowed us to reach a different kind of audience, a different demographic to start with, but also different kinds of people. Like providing free accessible music allows us to open ourselves up to anyone and everyone. And furthermore, one of the things that we're really, you know, embarking on this this coming summer, really starting this summer is people want to see themselves on the stage, right? You know, as in anything, they need to see themselves. So we're doing this really lovely Juneteenth concert oh, this year that is is in all the performers will be mostly black musicians. And it's going to be the the sort of immersion of gospel and orchestral music, which sounds really amazing. And I can't wait to see it. But, you know, we have this wonderful um, black soprano coming in from Houston, Texas, Naguanda Nobles. And she'll be working with Brandon Boyd, who is the assistant choral director at Mizzou, who is an amazing pianist and and really a champion of gospel music. And then there'll be a, a choir. And, you know, we're we're trying to show people that this music can be for everyone and and maybe it's it to be for everyone it can't it can't always exist as it has you know and so we're really um interested here and and I know that my director for education Natreach has been exploring this in her podcast is how do BIPOC the BIPOC community how do they feel they do belong to symphonic music and we're ready to help meet them where that is well i i love that I love in the UK, there's an orchestra called Chinake, and it was founded in 2015 to provide career opportunities for young, black and ethnically diverse classical musicians. And in one of the interviews, the founder, Chichi Nwanaku, she talked about how they wanted to put the fun into classical music, that it was too stiff. It was too laced with etiquette that made people feel awkward, like knowing when to clap rather than just clapping when you think, oh, that was awesome. I'm going to clap now. So I'm curious what discussions you have around making classical music more accessible, not just the price point, but that sense of it being young and dynamic and fun and interesting. So I'm, I'm giving away some already some treats from the summer, but actually our closing <laughs> concert, I'll just go ahead. The, the, your listeners will be the first ones to know. It's actually a collaboration with a, a hip hop group called Fly. And the name of the concert is actually called Breakin' Classical. And what they do is they are a group of Latino and black men. A lot of them grew up in, in very um, dire circumstances. And they they joined this group after seeing it in an outreach performance. And then this group does hip-hop music to classical music. So they're, they are literally breakdancing on the stage and on the floor and doing all those twists and turns and all that stuff to 
maybe uh, I think one of the pieces we're going to do is from Carmen. And they do it also to more, I think another piece we're doing is a, a jazz standard. And so the orchestra is playing this music, but what we're seeing in front of them are these, these young men who are, who are doing this dancing, you know, that was born out of the Bronx in New York. And I'm really excited. You can actually see them online. They've, they've done many concerts. And I think that that is one of the ways that we meet people where they are is we, how, how can this music be paired you know, with other things to show that they can work together. Well, you mentioned Kurt Trevor, and you said earlier that he is stepping down. I mean, you've only had two conductors over the past 50 years, Hugo Vianello up until 1998, and then Kurt Trevor since then. So can we just talk a little bit about what Kirk has accomplished for the symphony over his years, the last 23 years with the symphony? Yes, 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 you're exactly right. We've had, this is sort of a new chapter for us, literally, in the sense that, you know, we have only had two two conductors over the past 25 years. You know, how I've recently begun to think about it as I've watched the documentary is, you know, Maestro Vianello was very, um, a lot of his concerns involved the building, because at that point, you know, the Missouri Symphony owned the building. There was a lot to do with the building, and that kept him really busy. When when Kirk took over and, and we got through all the building stuff, Kirk really had to find a way to try to invigorate different audiences. And one thing that Kirk has brought to the symphony is a start to a variety of programming. So it, it became not just chamber orchestra music, you know, by Mozart or Beethoven, but it became, here's a concert of Luke Skywalker versus Harry Potter because he loves John Williams. And, you know, here's how symphonic music also works in the world. You hear it in all these movies and video games. And so he's really tried to showcase where else symphonic music is used, maybe without us even knowing that it's symphonic music we're hearing. And he's also been really instrumental in building your conservatory for young musicians, too, as a music educator. How do you see his influence on the young musicians you see coming up through the conservatory? Yeah, when the conservatory was started in, in 2007, I mean, he, he really grew that from, I think, eight students to 120. And um, I see so much love still from former students from those early days, even to two years ago, and even sort of the awe that students today who are still in the conservatory have toward him. And when he's in front of them, I mean, he conducts like he's conducting just as he would as he was in front of the professionals, you know, <laughs> he is expecting, you know, greatness, and he is calling them to play these things that, that maybe they think is, oh, my gosh, can I really do this? But then by the end, when they get to the end result, they've really done something really amazing in what they've created. So looking ahead to the post-Kirk age, what skills or assets would be on your wish list for the conductor who will usher in the next era for Missouri Symphony? Yeah, that's a great question. We're, we're asking all those questions right now. I think, as I mentioned before, because we are really wanting to connect with this community and it's our number one value of our four values for our organization, and we're really, really interested in learning more and growing more in the DEI initiatives that we're looking for somebody that can help us with that, you know, and, and to a point that you made, how can we continue to make this music relevant to, to the world today? Why would someone who is an eighth grader want to listen to symphonic music? Or, you know, where would they find it? How can we point them into ways that it can actually be used in their lives? And it makes sense. When you look at the world of conductors, it is predominantly white and male. It would be really fabulous to have a female black or brown conductor mm -hmm. leading the Missouri Symphony. I mean, how far is your search extending? Are you looking globally or just within the Midwest or across America? 
I mean, we're definitely looking at least nationally. Um, it's not like we put out a call for this, at least not quite yet, and I'm not sure that we will. But we're, what we're using is the resources of our professional orchestra members. You know, we live in such a great musical community that we're using a lot of our community connections. And we're just asking for names of people they've worked with that they feel would bring value to our community and that would bring value to the Missouri Symphony. And I will say that even from that listing that we've received, which is somewhat short at this point, we have received some people of, of different, you know, diversity, which is great. And so I do think that in order to Again, as I mentioned before, representation matters. And I do think that's something that we're thinking about very carefully as we do this search. I believe that when Kirk was first hired, the symphony had a season where several different conductors got to try out. Are you are you doing something similar this time around? Yes, the summer of 2022 will be the summer of the conductors. And we will probably have about four different conductors that come in each for a week and do about two or three concerts. And then... Um, after that, using the feedback of, of those on the committee and, and those in the orchestra, we will make a decision after that. Well, going back to tomorrow night's premiere event, tickets are pretty pricey at $100 per person. What does the evening entail? Yes. So, of course, this is this particular event is, is, is more, more than not a fundraising event for us. We appreciate folks' support. But they do also receive, on their way out the door, a VIP box that has a number of wonderful goodies in it that has been carefully curated by the staff. And I, I won't give it away, but it's definitely worth it. It's, it's really <laughs> lovely. There's about six things in there. In addition, after the event, there will be a talk back with the filmmakers, which I'm really looking forward to. I'll be moderating. I will be talking with Matt Schacht, Aaron Phillips, and Lizzie Gurman, who all three have worked really long, hard hours on this project for us. And they're going to kind of talk through their process and talk through the hours and hours of footage that they've had to go through and hunting down certain pieces and articles or photos and, and just how, how that process really works as they put together a documentary. So will the film be available for people to see after this event, maybe for a lower ticket price? Yes, 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 absolutely. It will. It absolutely will. So obviously, like I said, Someday there'll be probably another version that we'll be able to show in normal times and, and we'll have probably have another premiere of sorts. But in the meantime, we will be able to release this um, for a lower ticket price via a link that we'll send and we'll have information about that as early as next week. Perfect. Well, the Missouri Symphony Orchestra's premiere of its new documentary, Another World, will be shown at the Missouri Theatre tomorrow night, Saturday, April the 10th at 7pm. And you can find out more information on their website at themosey.org. Trent Rash, thank you so much as always. Thank you. Always a pleasure. And that is it for another week. Talking about outdoor opera, two brand new Juneteenth musical celebrations, and a little theatre of the absurd makes me feel like the arts are really starting to bloom again, and I am so ready. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm or you can also connect through Spotify and the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guest today, the General Director of the Opera Theatre of St. Louis, Andrew Jorgensen, Theatre Director Xiomara Conejo, 
and the executive director of the Missouri Symphony Orchestra, Trent Rash. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Columbia. Columbia.